Add on top of that, it was right at dark thirty. Right. So oh you yeah, know, sun's going down. Yeah, you're you're you drive down the middle of both lanes, and uh, at that time the Blue Force Tracker wasn't probably as well known used at the time, knowing there was other you know units out, and so right at dark thirty was a hard time to be able to see what kind of lights were coming at you. Yeah, who so, was friendly yeah. or foe? Right. Oh yeah. So driving down the middle of the road and people coming at you and not getting off the road was kind of, for me, was the worst time. Once it gets dark enough, you can really tell a Humvee light compared to a a, a pickup truck. Dog Nation, we are coming at you with our third podcast. Um, you know what? We are excited about what the podcasts that we are doing are going to highlight when it comes to us recognizing the service and sacrifice of so many of our nation's sheepdogs. So the excitement for us when I, when I talk that way is about the opportunity for you, the audience, to learn about the uniqueness of so many of our nation's sheepdogs, so many of our military servicemen and women that are, one, still in uniform, and also those that are out, our veteran community. And also, wow, how about our first responders, our law enforcement and fire and rescue men and women that are out there every day serving on the front lines, protecting us. And so... As we continue to dive into what it is to be a sheepdog and to be part of the Sheepdog Nation, uh, I can't wait to, to share those stories and give you the, uh, the opportunity to hear more of what it is that these men and women do, what it is that makes them unique in the reality of who they are as sheepdogs. Now, with that being said, we have a special guest today. Uh, in Scott West. And some of you may know Scott because he's actually a staff member of ours. So Scott, thanks for being here with us today. And uh, we're excited to hear some of your story about why it is that you're with Sheepdog and uh, what it is that you're doing with us as an organization. But you know what, I want to give you a chance to, one, tell us a little bit about you and your service. Uh, I know that there's a lot of people out there that may have heard a little bit of it, but don't know the full story. But more importantly, for those that don't know you, um, and you know, as a as a fellow sheepdog and a brother that's been here with us now, Scott, I'm losing track of my years. You've been with eight, nine years now, almost nine, almost nine. Um, it's amazing to see the journey you've been on, and more importantly, what it is that you do with us today. So uh, tell us your story. Yeah, so uh, I think my story starts off um, at an early age, the day I was uh, born, actually. Uh, I was born to parents that were crack addicts, so I was taken from them at birth and I put into a foster home. And so uh, the first eight years of my life, uh, I lived in a foster home watching kids getting adopted, you know, left and right as uh, I was still sitting there. And if you know any of the analogy we use during our outdoor adventures or warrior path of feeling like I was damaged goods, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that nobody wanted me. But uh, I was blessed enough to be able to be adopted uh, by a great, lovely uh, Christian family. And uh, I, uh, I did great. I excelled. I did sports, uh, track, cross country, baseball, basketball, all of that. And obviously, when the Twin Towers got hit, I remember where I was on a bus on my way to Votech. And uh, I knew that that was my calling, was wanting to serve this country. And so I actually joined the military in 2003, the Army, uh, when I was still 17. So I actually had to get a waiver. You know, yeah. I, I turned 18 in basic, 
So if you know anything about trying to keep your uh, birthday a secret and basic, it's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work out like that. No, they're ready for you. Yeah. But, of course, I went through basic in uh, Fort Sill, Oklahoma. I went through AIT, Advanced Initial Training, in Fort Bliss, Texas. And I went through Airborne School in Fort Benning. And I got to my unit in Fort Stewart, Georgia, uh, right there in mid of, of 2004. Um, as soon as I got there, I signed up for a 14 Sierra, which is an Avenger crew member, uh, kind of off the, you know, off the front lines. And uh, they changed my MOS to a uh, 19 Delta, which is recon Cav Scout. So the last uh, couple months I was in country before I left for advanced party was learning my new job, uh, route clearance, kicking down doors, um, et cetera. And uh, so I went over in uh, November of uh, 2004. And, uh, again, we worked with uh, military intelligence, special forces, gathering information on high-value targets, uh, cache searches, route clearance, um, all the way from Kuwait all the way up into northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. I was with, uh, again, attached with 3rd ID, <clears throat> 101st Airborne Division. And uh, I, I always, you know, tell people, you know, when, when we come back and we have post-traumatic stress and just – how people can't, you know, believe what you've been through. You, they just can't fathom what you've been through. Uh, it even goes as far as I remember us getting into Kuwait and the guys that were taking over or that we were taking over for, you know, I remember talking to one of them and asking them how it was, right? And we'd both been through basic, both been through AIT, been down range, and uh, he tried to explain to me what Iraq was like. And even still being there, I still couldn't fathom what I was getting into when we got north into Iraq. And uh, so I was there for almost a whole year. I had a couple of days left for us coming home. We were actually doing right seat ride where the people that were taking over or riding with us. Uh, one week out of every month, we pull QRF, a quick reaction force team. If somebody was to hit, be hit with an IED, something happened, uh, we got deployed in our area of operation to pull 360 security for those guys so they could get their vehicles back up and running and uh, get back on the road. And uh, so we were pulling that week of uh, QRF. And I just got off a 12-hour tower guard, uh, just taking a shower, and I was getting ready to uh, hop in my chew, and a buddy of mine came to me and asked me if I could take over. Um, For him, he wasn't feeling too well. And so when we did QRF, we were actually in a different Fort Observing base than where we were stationed the whole time, which is about 20 clicks northeast of um, Balad, Iraq. Uh, We were at Camp Anaconda, and we were in Fob Palawada. And uh, our lieutenant was going back to do debriefing on my friend that had passed away the day before he got hit with an ied ended up flipping the truck upside down laying on the gunner's neck he suffocated passed away and so uh, i volunteered i said yeah i'd do the mission uh the only difference between this mission and most of the other missions was obviously i was the rear vehicle driver most of the time mm-hmm. and so i usually just followed suit with what everybody did in front of me um he was the lead vehicle driver so of course you feel like there's a lot more weight on your shoulders, right? Everybody else is is following suit with what you're doing. And so uh, we headed back to Camp Anaconda. Uh, We got there. I grabbed some hot chow, grabbed some stuff out of my room that I'd forgotten. And uh, on our way back, uh, we were going through Zulu 10, which was a roundabout, not even 600 yards from our Ford Observing Base we were were heading to. And uh, ASEX Ray called up and asked us to go check out Tango 10, which was west of our location, uh, actually on Tampa. Uh, which is the road that runs from Kuwait mm-hmm. all the way to northern Iraq, mm-hmm. the highway. The main, the main highway there, yeah. Yep. And uh, it was actually an overpass. Uh, the week before that, we went to go check on the uh, Iraqi police that were there, and they actually had a, uh, a PlayStation and a TV set up. So uh, we uh, we were told to go check on them and make sure they were doing their job. Uh, from Zulu 10 to Tango 10, of course, you got the Sunni Shiites and the Cretes, all the different terror cells there that mm-hmm. you go down this road, you know, you're getting hit with an IED. You go down this road, you're getting hit with small arms fire, etc. cetera. Uh, this road was known for IEDs, mm-hmm. and it was my, the same road that my friend passed away on the day before. So, so. At, on that note, you're, you're driving down the road, and I think this is sometimes what's important for people to grasp. You're on an, a mission to investigate, for your lieutenant, the accident that had happened the day before where your friend had died. So this kind of goes back to, you know, a lot of thoughts of serving overseas. You know, no matter what, the mission still goes on, right? 
mission goes on and sometimes that mission overlaps with the tragedy of losing friends and fellow service members and so you're on a route that's known for having IEDs and your friend had died the day before on this route and you're back on it again so it it has so many layers, right, of how that's impacting you and how you feel. So, yeah, go ahead. Continue sharing that with yeah, us. Yeah, and the one thing that on top of that, it was right at dark 30, right? So oh, you yeah, know, sun's going down. Yeah, you're, you're, you drive down the middle of both lanes, and uh, at that time, the Blue Force Tracker wasn't probably as well-known used at the time, knowing there was other, you know, units out. And so right at dark 30 was a hard time to be able to see what kind of lights were coming at you. Yeah, who was, so, friendly yeah. or foe, right? Oh, yeah. So driving down the middle of the road and people coming at you and not getting off the road was kind of, for me, was the worst time. Once it gets dark enough, you can really tell a Humvee light compared mm-hmm. to a, a, a pickup truck. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, and this part all happened so fast, but as it came up on it, we realized that the hole was filled in with dirt again that my friend had got hit in the day before. So the hole that had... You know, was it howitzer shells, you think, that were buried? One, two, round. Yeah. Yeah. So they were buried in the ground. They had exploded, and which unfortunately was so common, the the insurgents came back and buried that hole again and filled it in with explosives, and y'all are about to drive right over that same hole again. Exactly. Ah. Yeah. And as we came up on it, you know, usually the military, at least when we were there, they would fill the hole in with tar, concrete, or something hard surface. So, again, like you said, driving it. past it the next day, you could tell, okay, military's taking care of that. We can push on. Uh, f- filled in with dirt again. Again, you're a lot on the defensive side when you're driving down those roads. Because if you're driving in the middle of the road, they've covered up the right side. What do you do? You veer left. Mm-hmm. And just because they don't speak our language it doesn't not it doesn't mean that they're not smart yeah right so either they've planned another ied on the other side of the road where you veer away from the other or there's another ied there yeah and unfortunately um that's what it was it was three uh one five five rounds mm. um that ended up uh going off uh tried jerking the wheel so that our truck would not even hit the the wires on the road again it was it was dark 30 we came up on it I started veering left. We saw the wires. I tried jerking off the road completely to miss those wires. My uh, front left tire still hit those, and it detonated. Uh, it ended up blowing a hole nine foot wide, eight foot deep, and blew our truck a foot up in the air and off down into a ravine. And uh, I remember kind of coming to, you know, the adrenaline's pumping, right? I mean, yeah. if it, it again, you can't fathom that when you're driving on the road and the vehicle it looks decently clean, but when ID goes off, the dust and everything from the floor just comes up in the air and you can't see anything, right? Regardless if it's your truck getting hit or if it's 20 feet away, it's just complete dust. And so, of course, we go off down in the ravine and I kind of come to and my, my team chief's yelling as if everyone's okay and rounds are going down range and uh, our uh, interpreter's yelling, right? So as I come to, I feel like I've driven us right into the middle of the insurgents, right? It just kind of, it's just, it's fast. Everything's happening so fast. Yeah. And so the team chief comes around to my side of the truck, says some choice words, and and I said, well, man, get me out of the truck. I feel like my legs are laying on the engine. I felt like somehow the firewall was missing in between the cab and the the motor, and my legs were somehow just laying on it. it. Again, this is, yeah, you couldn't process what was happening. That's all I could feel was just heat. And uh, so, of course, they pulled me out of the truck and, uh, you know, they take my flak vest off, my my Cavalier off. They got it up under my head. Um, My brothers are around me, right, this whole time uh, talking to me. Uh, They called up a nylon medevac. 30 minutes into that, they realized that uh, uh, since we were doing right seat ride, they thought it was just a training exercise. So they 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 didn't send anything out. So they called up another nine line medevac, and fifty five minutes into it, the Blackhawk finally showed up. And so it uh, took an hour from the time you got hit to the time Kazibak arrives. I, I don't think I knew that portion of the story. That you know, you you want to talk about dying? I mean, they're setting you up for failure with that because of the confusion and the chaos of war. That's what most people sometimes struggle to understand is there's just so many moving parts. And then when you're in the middle of something like that, where rounds are going down range, as you said, 
and you've got people screaming in pain or severely wounded. Everybody is on edge. And to that point, the chaos just really, it really confuses everybody, right? It makes it that much worse. That's, yeah, that's one thing that, uh, that's really stuck with me when somebody tried to explain to me what, you know, post-traumatic stress was, right? Mm -hmm. Was it's literally separating the emotion from the event so that I remember the first time we got hit with an IED, you know, I literally almost, I didn't black out, but I froze. It's that fight, flight, or freeze. And with the post-traumatic stress, it helps you separate that emotion from the event so that you're not freezing or you're fighting, right? So that's what, that's kind of, it it literally separates it to where you're numb to the feeling. And that's what I believe, you know, what it is. And I I don't believe it's a disorder. I think it's something that can be changed, right? If it's been rewired one way, it can be rewired another. But, um, but you're laying in the dirt now. Yeah. Laying in the dirt. And you, have you realized yet that your legs are gone? No. Um, I, I did not No, for the 55 minutes that I was there. Um, I did not, they called up the second line, nine line medevac. They actually got a, a medical Humvee out there from Fab Palawada before the black hut got there from camp Anaconda. Um, they actually got me up in the gurney, put me in the back of the Humvee, and, and I remember all this vividly, right? And I remember them getting me in it. And literally, as soon as they shut the doors, big rumbling. And then they opened the doors back up and the Blackhawks there. Oh. And uh, they pulled me out. They actually dropped me out of the gurney. And uh, they get me back up in it. And they get me in the Blackhawks. So they dropped you. <laughs> they dropped you me. You saying? You yeah. fell out of the gurney <laughs> stretcher for some other people. Yeah. But you've been laying in the stretcher. And now they dump you out. Yep. And, and again, because I, I, I'm, I'm for the audience yeah. and for even me at and you still don't know that you you don't have any legs. Mm-hmm. No. So you fall out of this stretcher and <laughs> you, know, you know you're hurt. You yeah. know you got to go get help, but you don't realize how severe it is. No, I don't. No. Um, but uh, as soon as the Blackhawk got there, they loaded me up. And I remember my team chief yelling, you know, can I go with him? And he said, are you injured? And he said, no. And he goes, we have no room for nobody else. And uh, from the – I mean, we literally – the team, my team chief, you know, walked back and the, the Blackhawks started lifting up and I flatlined right then and there. So you died. I died. Um, I had nobody around me talking to me. Right. I had none uh, of my friends yeah, around me yeah. um, that were keeping me, I guess, alive in a way. Um, and uh, I flatlined right then and there. And it's not even but about a three or four minute flight from there, probably back to Camp Anaconda. And uh, they revived me. And then it wasn't seconds later I flatlined again. I ended up flatlining three times from in the field to the time I got to Camp Nakanda. So in that three or four minutes span, you died three times. And, yeah. Um, was there any any knowledge as to was it loss of blood, shock, combination probably of all of that? Loss of blood, yeah. yeah. Um, if it would have happened two minutes earlier than that, they did not have the equipment in the field to be able to revive me. I mean, it just yeah. would have been – you know, the best they could have you done, been CPR. In that, yeah, in that helicopter at that point with yeah. a medical team prepared to do what they needed to yeah. do. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah. So I was lucky enough that I got to Camp Anaconda uh, within hours of a flight leaving the launch tool. Mm. Um, so I think they kind of um, they kind of slapped me together the best they could. They threw me on the flight, and I got to launch tool. Um, I don't remember it, uh, but I guess I called my mother and told her I was coming home early. Um, and, uh, when I got to launch stool, they don't fly you from launch stool to the States until you're completely stable. Um, because obviously on the long flight from Germany to the United States, there's no doctors and there's no emergency surgery. There's nothing like that. Of course, being, you know, high altitude as well. And, uh, I was lucky enough again, blessed that I got to launch stool and I was able to fly straight out to the States. So they made the decision to put you on a plane and fly you immediately. Yeah. Okay. So I, I get home and, and kind of this, this kind of all meshes together, right? Because from the time that I died and uh, the time that I woke up felt like about 10 seconds. Like I said, I'd, I grew up in a Christian home. Um, I went absolutely crazy, you know, when I joined the military, right? Yeah. I never cussed. I never drank. I never smoked. None of that, right? Mm-hmm. Nothing. And uh, so I started doing it all overnight. And... Um, so it was that foxhole prayer, right? Please, Lord, let me live. I swear I'll be, I said, I swear, I swear I'll be a shining light for you, right? That's what I said. I, I, you know, I, I will, I will stop it all. Just let me live. And it felt like 10 seconds from the time I died to the time I woke up. 
and I was there at Walter Reed. But in the midst of all of that, I get to Walter Reed, and I was in ICU. And again, it maybe just all just felt like a bad dream, just not, again, timeline-wise, felt right. It started coming too later. But I remember waking up in ICU, and I remember being strapped down, right, tube down my throat. Mm. And uh, what they were doing was, when I woke up, was when they cut all my medication off. And when I cut all my medication off, I'd start screaming and breathing, and I'd be in pain. All they wanted was me to start breathing again. Yeah. I was that close to death. And then they would turn it all back on. And I went through that. I I even remember looking at the clock. I thought I was in Area 51. I mean, like that's. I mean, I remember them telling me that your parents will be here at six, right? Your parents will be here. And I remember over the times that I kept waking up, I remember looking up at it being past six, and then, you know trying to get out of the restraints that I was in because I, I didn't believe them, right? Mm-hmm. I went from literally driving a Humvee to waking up into, you know, where I could not move, you yeah, know. very disorienting and... Uh, yeah. You're, you're just, yeah, it's just, it's an experience that, um, yeah, you've just, and you've still not, and I, I kind of dropped this point home that you're not in a position yet to still understand the gravity of your injuries. You don't mm-hmm. understand that you've lost your legs. Yeah. So with that, um, we're going to take a pause for just one moment. Uh, we'd, uh, we're going to come back, obviously, and continue visiting with Scott West and him sharing his story. Uh, but this is what it's about, ladies and gentlemen. It's about understanding the service and the sacrifice of our men and women in uniform, our nation's chief dogs. With that, we'll be right back. We're back with Scott West, world famous type for those of you that don't appreciate uh, the significance of who this man is. But uh, uh, we are so blessed to have Scott with us today sharing his story. And on that note, we're going to turn it back over to you. So you, um, as you were saying, you you felt like you were in Area 51 just because you got all these lights and beams. And for all you know, aliens are operating on you at this point. You've come home and um, you're in the hospital bed and just, you don't, you don't understand the gravity of the situation you've been in. Uh, and I think you're anticipating kind of seeing your family at this point, aren't you? Yeah. So, uh, the ICU lasted for roughly 24 hours. I bet you my parents probably were there by six, but I just wasn't ready to be able to move to, uh, ward 58 where uh, I'd be staying. And, uh, of course I told you from the time I passed, you know, I died the time I woke up was at 10 seconds. Uh, the t- when I woke up, I actually woke up next to my mother and father mm-hmm. and uh, and went to lean up, right? Went to give them a hug. And uh, and that was when there was no, it's hard to explain, there was no weight, right, for my legs to lift the front of my body up. So it literally, cliche, literally my nubs came in my face. And that's when I realized that, you know, I was missing my legs. It wow. just all came through together. And uh, so you, yeah, dude, based on that weight difference. You try to lean forward, and what most people, you know, struggle to appreciate, we take for granted, right? As the weight of your legs kind of keeping you balanced, you do that, and yeah, what's left, your your nubs, and yeah. your injuries. You lost your legs from the knees, just below the knees, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like your knees come flying up, and you've yeah. got your lower portion of your legs are gone at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, and that's when I realized, obviously, that, uh, I was missing both my legs, and, uh, with a halo asphyxiator on my left leg, right, my femur had crushed in 14 pieces. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, and to give a, you know, where I was, again, just to, you can't fathom the injuries I was at, was I had 38 surgeries in the next 30 days. You were about to begin 38 surgeries. 38 surgeries, yeah. Wow, okay. Literally going into a surgery, coming out of a surgery, kind of getting out of that cloud then going right back into one my mother tells a story about uh us watching the same movie like three or four nights in a row um the cinderella man 
and uh, where they had a TV they brought in with some movies that you could select from, and I selected the same movie every single night and didn't even remember I watched it uh, the night before. before. Yeah. So if that gives you a, a thought of just where I was those first 30 days um, of going in and out. But uh, after those 30 days, obviously my parents' PTO time ran out, and of course the surgeries were gone and started to become back to realization, right, of... Uh, of my injuries at the time, uh, and this was 2000, you know, 2005, 2006. Mm. So uh, obviously there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter, there was no Instagram, right? Uh, social media was, was you know, kind of null and void. So for me to see the injuries that I had, there was nothing out there really for me to be able to watch or me to be able to see somebody else with my injuries succeed, right? I mean, I thought I was going to be in a wheelchair the rest of my life. I never have a family, children, um, and I, and again, I would be looked down on mm-hmm. right in a wheelchair, going from kicking down doors to sitting in a wheelchair, right? Just, I mean, it was yeah. it sent me into a deep, dark, you know, depression. And that's it isn't that that's I think that's where a lot of people struggle. You know, people that haven't experienced that sort of trauma. Um, I, you know, once something that's just jumped out at me. You know, we. You know, the power of smartphones, right? The ability to just pull your phone up and type in something and learn everything you want about it, see videos and pictures and images. And that is a little surreal now as we take things for granted like that. The ability to access knowledge and information. But for someone in your position, and you said it, and it just, I mean, it still, it, it, it strikes in such a powerful way how important it is for you to understand that you're not alone. And part of that is seeing other people that are dealing with and overcoming adversity, right? So you you don't get to hear stories immediately, right? Or see images of someone else that's lost their legs and you can see, okay, they overcame this. And look at how they're, they're out wakeboarding and you know snow skiing and riding bikes or doing whatever they want. They're living a normal life again. You're sitting there with this new reality that you have to process on your own without the ability to see or imagine a better world, right? You're just knowing, I, I've lost my legs, my life is over. So and that's what, am I right in, in assuming that that is that feeling of I'll never be as good as I once was, right? And we talk about that in Warrior Path through post-traumatic growth. I'm broken. I'm damaged goods. Um, no one is has had it as bad as me because, again, you don't have a reference point to know otherwise. And so that depression is driven by just that feeling of being alone, that you're the only one in that situation at that time, which is very understandable, but it's trying to get people to grasp that, right? Because I, I don't think until right now when you said that, again, it's appreciating that you can't just look up amputee, amputees that are out there succeeding, right? Yeah, and that's what's powerful about it because the next part of my story is, of course, you know, a month and a half to two months after that of just sitting in my room again just mm-hmm. in a deep, dark depression. And there was a gentleman that came into my room. He was in his dress blues. And uh, I remember I had a, the one thing that I, I did was I, they got mad at me for putting pins in the walls. But I had 40 or 50 hats. Back then I was one of those flat bill guys. Mm-hmm. I can't stand them now. But uh, I just had the whole side of the wall just with, you know, with hats on it. And that was kind of my, my piece of feeling like I was doing something. Mm-hmm. But a uh, guy came in my room. He spoke. Uh, I think my parents still uh, stay in contact with him today, but didn't listen to a word he said. I didn't care. And he left the room, and a gentleman came in. Uh, we called him Milkshake Man. And every single night on Ward 58 and 59, he would bring chocolate or vanilla shakes from McDonald's to You're all of us. You're talking my language ward. now. You know I love milkshakes, <laughs> oh, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he came in and, of course, said chocolate or vanilla. And he said, I said you, know that I, you know what I want, right? Chocolate. And, uh, and he said, well, what'd you think about that guy that I had sent in your room? And I said, what guy? And he's like, well, the guy that came in just dressed blues. And I said, I didn't, you know, listen to a word that he had to say. Right. Then he shared 
that guy's story. Mm-hmm. He was a double amputee. So you just had a double amputee in uniform come and see you and visit with you, but you were so out of it from a, I don't, depression and sadness. Yeah. You just didn't I don't care. care. You didn't care about anything at that point. Yeah. yeah. But the, what you were just talking about, the powerful of being able to get on a phone and, and be able to, you know, relate with others or feeling like I was alone. That was the point right there where I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. So because this the milkshake man, what what do you remember his name? You no, I don't. <laughs> hey, milkshake man. That's what I, it'd still be to me. It too, came to me three man. or four months ago in the middle of telling the story, and I really remember. I remembered his name, and then it just went. You know, back it, out. it'd be powerful. <laughs> you f- try and figure out who that guy was, but so the milkshake man then tells you his story. So what was that guy's story? Double amputee, uh-huh. lost his legs, and he was still active. Oh, he's serving. Do you, he was still serving. You remember who that was? I don't. Uh, my she, my mother and father, like I said, I s- still stay in con- or have his contact info. Because you know what uh, I'm thinking. You had to get him on out here. Well, we got to get him out here. That that connection, how powerful mm-hmm. that is, and uh, yeah. So hey, if if he's listening, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we need to, but maybe your parents. That's something we need to talk about offline. But see if we can figure yeah. that out, right? And uh, and that was again where I saw the light at the end of the tunnel. Right. If that guy can do it in his 40s. Remember, I joined at the age of 17. I wasn't even 21 oh, yet. Yeah. I was still 20 years old. Mm. But again, no life to look forward to. Right. right. And uh, there was a guy proving that wrong. Yeah. But you you were you were now starting to connect the dots. Yes. Right. I can get there. Yeah. And, and that was the other thing, too, was that I was embarrassed, you know, of my injury mm. um, forever. I wore pants. Right. To hide it. To hide it. Because mm-hmm. I was embarrassed of it. Right. And uh, and so long story short. Right. To be able to prove to you that that his his story changed, you know, my life was that three and a half months, you know, after my injury, I was in uh, Vail and I went on an event with another nonprofit there that was uh, doing things for veterans. And uh, they took me mono skiing. If you know what a mono ski yeah. is, it's like basically a sit-down ski, one single ski with outriggers, yeah. and you literally go down the mountain. This is right? three and a half months after <clears throat> your injury. Three and a half months. You're now on a mountain slope skiing. Yeah. Uh, love it, yeah. And um, and the funny thing was, was that these were offered to me from probably the day after my surgeries. I didn't so care. It, it wasn't until – so that turning point for you was when that, that warfighter came in there and you heard his story from the milkshake man yeah. that – you can there's this is proof that you can live your best life still oh, yeah. if you're willing to try and so yeah you're now you're doing it yeah that was my social media i yeah. mean that that's what it was but uh i mono skied the first and second day right and i loved it i was having a blast right i, I was flying they had a rope connected to me it was in that second day that i saw a guy fly past me right and i noticed what he was wearing he was one of the guys out of our group and he was an amputee and he was he was snowboarding down the mountain. Did, had he lost both legs? Single, single, single leg, but he's still he's yeah. And he'd been there for you know probably six seven months on a snowboard on a snowboard. Okay, like it was nothing. Mm. And so that night at dinner, I remember I I was probably silent there for you know a little bit as everyone else was talking. I finally you know spoke up and said, uh, I think I'm snowboarding tomorrow. And they oh, <laughs> you just stick with the mono ski, you know. And then I kind of like. Well, no, actually, I, I'm snowboarding or I'm not doing anything. Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm sno- I'm snowboarding. And uh, God bless their souls. They uh, they pushed my wheelchair out in the snow, you know, from the back of my room. And uh, they strapped my legs to the board, strapped me to the board, and then lifted me up and pushed me, you know, down the mountain. I didn't make it 30 yards right well 30 yards still <laughs> people with with their legs sometimes yeah. can't do that and you just did that with with prosthetics yeah i couldn't even wow. that the this thing is that is that i couldn't even walk yet wow. i couldn't even walk without a you know without a walker and you're snowboarding and i'm snowboarding and i have over 450 staples in my legs right oh yeah literally from your surgery oh yeah from my surgeries yeah oh yeah and so uh, that was again where i felt like you know i had that oomph. i had that that adrenaline rush, that that go, right? Mm. But uh, obviously, uh, I was there at Walter Reed for 13 months. Uh, I got out in February of 2007. And uh, I took for granted, like just like everything else in life, I took for granted what I had there, right? I wasn't with my brothers over in Iraq. 
but I was still with a bunch of guys that understood what I'd been through, right? And we have sick sense of humor, sick minds, you know, and that's just how we are. And uh, I was, you know, I was getting out, and uh, I thought everything went great. I got a, you know, a condo about six, seven miles away from my parents' house, no yard to mow, you know, thought I had everything made. And uh, about three or four days after the new wore off, uh, I was back back into that deep depression, right? Mm-hmm. I was back at home, not just, you know, not overseas with my brothers, but I wasn't with anybody that understood you're, what I'd been you're through. You're alone, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and that's when everything really started crashing down. At, at Walter Reed, it was the depression, right? Uh, this was drinking and drugging and numbing the feelings of what I had, right? The survivor's guilt, uh, what I, what would have happened if I would have went left, you know, if I would have went right, you know, if I would have stopped, if I wouldn't have been, have been there at all. And you begin so, to really process everything in a new, real way. Oh, yeah. Because you're now you're, when we talk about it, you're, you're sitting on the couch. Yeah. Right? You're at home alone on the couch, and you're, you're processing life and yeah. you're processing everything really for the first time, probably clear head, a clearer head than you've had in a while, no distractions. So you're sitting there alone and it's, it's hit you. Oh yeah. Mm. And, uh, I don't know how much it plays into the factor of, uh, but again, I grew up in a Christian home, so I was somewhat of an outcast, you know, um, in middle school, high school, etc. So of course, when I got back, I didn't really have friends. Right. So I, I, I moved back to my hometown, but there was nobody really for me to call. But my parents, I mean, that was it. Right? Well, and to, to clarify, <laughs> it, it wasn't just that you were in a Christian home. You had really strict parents. Yes. You had very strict religious parents that kind of you did it, it. You were alienated a little bit from having normal friends in a way yep. because your parents in their own way of thinking the best way to protect you from the world was to keep you from the world right yeah. so you you didn't have that type of friend structure when you got back yeah which i do credit that i know i know it seems like it was bad but i th- i believe that i am who i am today because of my upbringing because, of that upbringing. because the way that i was trained just took right? a little I mean, while to appreciate the value in that because yeah i think you've shared with me before that your parents were concerned because of the the background you had with your parents, mm-hmm. right? Your birth parents who were addicts, they were concerned that probably if they kind of let you out into the world, so to speak, in school and exposed you to too much stuff, you may have that the, the addictive personality. Yeah, that personality. Yeah. So they were they were trying hard to protect you from yourself. Yeah. So it wasn't just, hey, we're Christians, we're gonna keep you from the world. It probably had more to do with their fear of doing the best that they could for you Protecting based on child. your background, right? Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, of course, like I said, it, it was all downhill from there. Uh, got into a uh, failed marriage. Uh, the only good thing that came out of that was my son, uh, Kipton. Um, and uh, I lost all of that, right? Uh, she ended up leaving me because of my addiction uh, to pain pills, right? They just... That was one thing that the VA did was literally just shoved them down my throat, right? I mean, and of course, playing the victim card. You could right? get as many pills as you wanted, right? All I wanted, yeah. And uh, and when it, and when it became, you know, even the prescription that I was getting wasn't enough, and I was going out in the streets trying to find, you know, the pills was when it got uh, bad enough where somebody, you know, shattered the front windshield or the front window of my house and, and broke in, and that was when she said it was enough. Yeah. And uh, and of course, in my sick mind i thought okay well you know i'll go to rehab and i'll just learn how to take my medication properly right which is the addictive you know personality that i have right i'll stay off of them for 30 days uh my tolerance will go back down and then i'll be able to take them the way that they're prescribed and uh, i was dead wrong on that um in and out of rehab three or four times uh obviously with you know if you know anything about um addiction or alcoholism it can take the best man I mean, down to literally nothing, right? And so, of course, when you're clean and sober, you're great. But literally, it's, it's. I mean, it, within 24 hours, you can be back doing what you were doing. Yeah. And that's exactly what I did every single time that I left rehab. Every time I went in, I did great, right? Even one of them, I was working for the place that I was going to rehab for to be able to pay for my, my housing and my food, right? Mm-hmm. 
but the, within 24 hours of leaving, I was right back to doing what I was doing. Mm. And the difference with the last time, right, that I got pulled over, um, I got pulled over in, in uh, 2007 shortly after I got out, not months, you know, after I got out, um, but just uh, not as well taking drugs, but selling them as well. So, you know, I got, by the skin on my teeth, I got five years probation, right, in Missouri, which was where I was from. And so when I started going to these rehabs, I actually um, went to Arkansas, right? They they gave me a furlough, I guess you would say, to be able to go to Arkansas, cross state lines, to be able to go to rehab. And uh, after that first one, I think I went for eight months. And then, of course, <laughs> the worst thing you can say is I got this, right? Mm-hmm. And I was right back to the way I was. And then from there on out, I was basically running from the law. And uh, I ended up uh, getting hurt. I had to go to the hospital, ended up getting a pick line which is basically a line that they put in your vein that goes directly to your heart. And they had a uh, extradition back to Missouri uh, for me. And uh, in the midst of all of this, um, these you know years that I was going into rehab, I actually got pulled over and actually got thrown in jail. But it was a, such a small town, they did not have the medical um, doctors to be able to work with the pick line that I had, so they had to release me. Mm. So the extradition was off, you know, I mean, I was back quote unquote, a free man. Right. Yeah. And, uh, it's funny to know that years later I found out from my mother that, uh, she actually found out that the extradition had been lifted. She actually called them back and had it reinstated. Reinstated. That's what saved my life. You know, I'd been pulled over two or three other times since that one. I thought that I was, you know, invincible. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so the night that I got pulled over, um, I had actually, it got so bad that the night that I got pulled over, um, when the cop pulled me over, I had, you know, popped all the pills that I had. And I said, well, you know, he ain't going to be able to, you know, do a, a, a test on me because I just pawned my prosthetics. Mm. Right. Yeah. I literally pawned my prosthetics for money you for drugs. Your, my you legs. Think about that. You know, people, <clears throat> he's in a place where you're so addicted and need, need that high that your prosthetics, your fake legs, you have pawned them to get the money you need yeah. to buy more pills. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So imagine that call that I had to do to call my mother and tell her to go pick up my yeah. my prosthetics out of pawn. You get my legs for me, Mama. Yeah, they were so embarrassed. I don't, again, I don't know <laughs> why they did it. They were so embarrassed to take them that they actually walked me back out to my car with a cardboard box and put my legs in the cardboard box in the car and then picked it up and walked it back inside. Uh, but yeah. still. I'm shocked that they were willing did to it. take your legs. Yeah. Because yeah. that's that that, that tell, that's got to tell someone that this person is in a bad place. Yeah. Yes, definitely. But then also, from the other side, what do you think? Man, this guy's been through war, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. I'm not saying it's the least thing I could do for him. I don't know. Yeah. I, again, I just try to think of what went through their head of why they did it. Besides, they're just feeling sorry. Yeah, they didn't know what to do. I think it was the shocked. victim card. Yeah, and they're they're just shocked. You know, on yeah. on that note, um, we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to be back with Scott to uh, to wrap things up on this end and and let him finish telling us the uh, the powerful powerful end to how sheep how he ended up here with Sheepdog and. Um, what Sheepdog has meant to him as uh, he has changed us as an organization as much as we've changed him. And so powerful conclusion of our interview and time with, uh, again, I'm always going to say world famous Scott (laughs) West. We'll be right back. how long you know that you're getting out for. Even if you come in and you do four years and that's your plan the whole time. I'm gonna do four and I'm gonna get out and I'm gonna go do this. 
it's still hard to leave those people who understand you. They have totally changed my life, transformed me and who I used to be and to who I am now. The best way for us to work through our problems is to work through our problems together. I got off the couch, got out of that dark place, I got put on an adventure. I wanted to make veterans feel the way that I felt on that adventure. And Sheepdog was able to bring us out here and be able to honor him and his family. Because we, as Sheepdogs, have a very different mentality and habits and the way that we speak. And we don't necessarily click with everyone. And so when Sheepdog is there and they're like, hey, come have fun with us. They're helping you without you necessarily saying, help me. So these kinds of events, people not only get to feel refreshed when they get to go out, but imagine if that was your life. We're, we're, we're set here when our potential's way up here. It was like a, like a reset, a recalibration. I mean, this is really for anyone who needs uh, a family and it needs uh, a, a reason to just get off the couch. And this is honestly the best thing that's happened to me since the Marine Corps and I could be more grateful. All right, hey, we're back. And uh, Scott, um, I think, you know, in hearing you talk about how you pawned your legs, I think you, you pretty much, you would hit the bottom at that point, right? And oh, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm excited to hear kind of, you know, the connection of, of what now with this flipping the switch, you know, that, that brought you to us. Yeah. So uh, obviously in and out of rehab multiple times um, and uh, literally 24 hours right back to what I was doing. Uh, but this time was was a big one, right? They had me for extradition, and I was going back to Missouri. And uh, so I sat in first time I really ever spent more than 24 hours in jail, right? And uh, had a hard look. You know, they didn't uh, they didn't bond me out or nothing. I actually had to see the the judge to be able to get bonded out to get a bond anything. Uh, so I spent 21 days in uh, jail, and uh, and kind of right. I thought that I was some um, hard thug, you know, drugging and, you know, dealing drugs, et cetera. And I was, gosh, the people I met in there made me I mean, straighten up quick, right? I mean, just first realize how, where I could get to mm -hmm. and realizing that I wasn't all that and that uh, I needed to become a father and a son um, and, uh, and a husband to somebody, right? I just needed to grow the f up yeah. <laughs> from where I was. And, um, so anyway, I, I ended up getting, uh, again, by the skin of my teeth, bonded out to my mother. And uh, she took me to a, uh, a program where I signed up for a year. It wasn't one of these 30-day programs. It was a year program. So I went through the 30-day rehab, and then they moved me to the year program. And again, within eight months of being there, I was the operations manager for the facility. Mm -hmm. right? And uh, again, every time that I was doing clean and sober, I was doing great. But uh, I did so well, I finished that year, and I re-upped for another year. And about seven months into that second year, I get a call from a gentleman, um, and uh, he was in my unit, and we somehow connected on Facebook that, you know, he was just an hour south of me in Rogers, Arkansas, right? And uh, and luckily, he didn't contact me, you know, even two years before that, because he probably would have, you know, wanted nothing to do with me. But he said, he said, have you heard about Sheepdog Impact Assistance? And I said, I have not. And he goes, well, man, you, you've got to come down here, and you've got to go skydiving. And I, you know, I kind of laughed and I said, uh, you know, first of all, you know, I haven't taken care of myself over the last, you know, five or six years. My prosthetics, I can barely take a step without them falling off, right, let alone skydive, you know. And uh, he goes, no, I don't think you understand. That's what's different. You know, they, they challenge people to get out there and and uh, and do those things and get off the couch. 
um, and do things that they don't think that they could ever do again. Uh, and of course, I was making every excuse in the book. Well, you know, I've been on other, you know, events with other nonprofits and it's nothing but a drink fest. I said, man, I'm I'm 18 months clean and sober. Uh, I don't need to be going on an event like that, you know. And he said, I, that's where I'm telling you it's different, man. You've, you've got to just come check it out. And he, he, for two weeks, he just nonstop, 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 until I finally gave in. And I uh, came down here to Rogers, Arkansas, and went skydiving. Mm. And um, I remember it. I remember uh, the people that were there. Um, I remember being in a group chat. I remember, again, skydiving. They strapped me. I was like a Joey, right, to his mama. No legs, like I was just strapped to a guy to his belly, just you know, flipping there. But uh, <clears throat> they threw me out of a perfectly good airplane. And uh, what was different about this was again, there was no drinking. It was like a family. And uh, and when I left, the text didn't stop. Right? It wasn't like after I left, they were done with me. You got you know, sheepdog was done. It was man, when are you going to come on a Spartan race, or you know, when are you going to come whitewater rafting, or when are you coming to Yosemite or D.C. or New York or you know, it was just one after the other. And I finally told him, I said, man, I, you know, I, I, I'm just getting my life back together, right? I get two weekends a month. I took one to go do this for myself, but you know, I'm just getting my son back in my life. You know, I, I don't have time to be able to do that. And, uh, fast forward about four or five months, a gentleman with sheepdog contacted me and said, man, you need to, you need to come move down here with me. Right. And, uh, and just start coming up to the office and volunteering. And I said, man, I don't think my mom's going to like that, right? You know, um, I've been doing good for the last 22 months. And, uh, and you know, she's got certain stipulations on if I move out, you know. And uh, and he goes, well, what are they? And I told him to him. And he goes, well, we'll make it work. This, 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 this. And I'm like, okay, you know. And uh, I packed up my stuff. And I know my parents were very worried, you know, at the time. Was, again, what happened every time after I got out of rehab? Yeah, I was right back to doing what I was doing. The difference this time was... I had a purpose. He gave me a purpose to be able to come up here to the office and staple papers and roll shirts. Mm-hmm. That's what I did at the beginning, right? You did. I came up here and for seven hours, it was, what can I do? What can I do? And uh, about three or four months in, I remember our secretary coming to me and, and asking, you know, hey, this veteran, you know, I can't get a hold of him. Um, we're trying to get him on this outdoor adventure. We're trying to purchase him a flight. Uh, is there any way that you can, you know, call him? I said, well, sure. And so I, I tried calling him and he didn't answer, but I did send a little, you know, three or four sentence of who I was. And I think it was a connection of a veteran, right? Mm-hmm. Boom. Called me right back and we got him on the outdoor adventure. And so that was where I kind of found my niche was sheepdog was right. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The most, the the thing with me and most other veterans, right, that come back that um, have post traumatic stress or injuries, is that my injuries are visible, right? Mm-hmm. For me to be able to tell somebody, or you know, they're saying, "Well, I can't do it," or you know, "I got this going on," or whatever. Man, I I was sleeping out of my car and pawned my legs, and now I'm here doing this, right? I just did a Spartan race, thirteen point two miles, twelve and a half hours. And you're telling me that you can't do that? And you are, you're all there, right? That was kind of where, again, where I, we have this wall that we have up, mm-hmm. right? And uh, it's that unspoken bond from veteran to veteran or law enforcement firefighter. We're kind of all on that same basis, right? That we run towards the firefight. Law enforcement runs towards the firefight. Uh, firefighters run towards the fire, right? It takes a certain kind of person to be able to do that. And uh, knowing that I walk up to another veteran and knowing that, if we were on the front lines, he would give his life for me and I'd give my life for him. Right. That's just that bond that you have. And so again, for a veteran to be able to contact another veteran. And I think there's been a couple of times where I, you know, said, man, just suck it, suck it up. You know, like really, again, look at my injuries, look where I've come from. And you're telling me you can't come out here on a fully sponsored, you know, event. You know, it's, as I sit and listen to that, you know, you have become, you've become the, the man that came into your room that day in his dress blues and was missing his legs. You know, that's, you, you weren't in a place to hear it yet, obviously, because it was so fresh, but you are him. You are doing that with so many lives now and touching 
the lives of so many military and first responder men and women that we serve. Um, but I think what's most important about your injuries is, you know, you have visible wounds. And to your point, um, we as human beings, the unfortunate side is seeing is believing for us, right? We want to see it to believe it. Uh, because when we talk about people's, you know, emotional trauma and post-traumatic stress and what they're dealing with, you know, in their, in their hearts and minds, you can't see it, right? And, you know, outside of it manifesting in addiction or uh, depression or whatever it might be, but it's, it's still just not, are you making it up? Are you just acting? Are you playing? But when you see that you don't have any legs, it's, it's, it's no joke, right? And so it is. Your story is powerful. And your ability, to your point from that first time that you were asked to try and help reach a vet, uh, you've excelled at that. And that's, I think, for me, as I've continued to watch you grow, I think that's the most important piece that we miss and, and take for granted sometimes is your ability to connect with men and women that feel like there's nobody else out there that understands them. Because you've also been through the addiction piece. I mean, you've run the gamut. I mean, you've, you've got the physical trauma. You've got the emotional trauma. You've got the TBI. You've got the addiction, right? You've, you've got all of it. And so if someone had an excuse not to get off that couch, it's you. If someone wants to sit and, you know, say, well, you know, I, this or that is my reason. Well, you've got every single one of them if you wanted it to be that way. You could play that victim card if you wanted to bad enough, and yet you're now in such a powerful position uh, and the pride we take in having you as our outdoor adventure director and, and getting and keeping people up off that couch. Uh, two things I have to say from that. Man, if you would have known me when I got here, Clean and sober, man. I was ate up yeah. <laughs> to where I am now, right? Oh yeah. Um, and the it's other powerful. the other thing I hear from that, as you continue to say, is trauma, trauma, trauma. And the one thing that I've learned that trauma is trauma. It is. It's trauma. Mm -hmm. No matter your trauma is no worse than my trauma. I mean, it is all in the same. It is no worse or no less. Yeah, right? it's all about how you were you you grew up, right, and how you were trained the way that you are you can have two people see the exact same event and you cannot discredit one from the other because of just the way that they were trained it's their experience but it's still trauma yeah absolutely so. and i and i think to, you know to that it's, it's kind of like i was stressing you've you you've had them all so no one can come to you and say well my trauma's less than or greater than or whatever it's like i've, I've had them all like you know I've, I've been through it there's nothing that i haven't seen or, or felt that you're feeling and it is. It's your ability then to go, no, we're, we're all the same. As human beings, we, we're, we're all we're struggling. And as we talk about, you can either struggle or you can struggle well. You can turn your, your, your struggles into strength. And you're the epitome of that, Scott. And that, that's you know, why we love you so much is you, if you're struggling well, my friend, and uh, – so much to be proud of and you're an inspiration to so many out there that they, they make up those excuses and uh, so I'm excited about what you're going to continue doing with us and uh, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you and I think one last thing to, to end it on uh, when you were talking about the lives you know that were saved um, I talk about my life being saved twice right once was in that field right when they got me on that Blackhawk and they saved my life. And uh, I feel like the uh, the other time was when I found Sheepdog. Right? I, I don't think I would be here today when plenty of other stories we've heard of the veterans that have come or Sheepdogs that have come through is that I don't think I would be alive today if it wasn't for Sheepdog. Well, so thank you for having me well, and putting up with me. Well, we appreciate you. And, you know, on that note, I, you know, putting up with you is a, is a blessing, brother. As, as painful as it can be, I've learned so much from you and watching you grow that – your value is uh, is limitless. So, you know, thank you for putting up with me too, right? And the challenges I throw your way, but it's because I know you can do it. And you've proven it so many levels. You've overcome so much. There's nothing we can't throw at you. Um, on that note, you know, if 
if there's anything that uh, you, anyone out there that would like to learn more about what we do, obviously our website uh, is available to you and you can contact us directly. But more important, if you are someone that feels like you're in a place as a fellow sheepdog, someone that has a military or first responder background, still serving or not, doesn't matter. Uh, we want to give you the opportunity to get up off that couch with us. You know, and Scott is the man that you can start talking to that can help you with that journey. But um, we are so excited again at the fact that we've had Scott with us and the power of your story and message. And so I, um, that will end podcast number three for us. And I'm, I'm thankful that we were able to do this one with a, a fellow brother and a, a staff member of ours, someone that has such a powerful story. Uh, do follow us again, um, you know, via our website, social media, and now our podcasts, right? As we continue to do our best to share the sheepdog mission uh, and, you know, more importantly, to talk about Sheepdog Nation, which is all of our military and first responder brothers and sisters out there. Uh, thank you again for listening and following us. And until next time, take care.